illustrious King Julian, self-proclaimed Lord of the Lemurs, etc., etc. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the King Julian Podcast. I am the host, Julian Owens, and with me, I have a frequent collaborator that was on Mandate Talk and a frequent collaborator that I intimately guest on for um, If the Armchair Fits Movie Podcast. Without further ado, guys, the guest I have here today is Brett Leipziger. Brett, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Great to be here. Thanks again, Julian. No worries. Thank you. Thank you for being on. So today, Brett, we're I guess we're going to dive deep into... Something that's a little different that I feel like we, we as moviegoers and people who are in the film industry are kind of starting to take the reins up since about, I want to say about four years ago, um, and just accountability in the film industry. So um, one thing that we wanted to bring up and just like have a discussion about was um, one of the biggest things that's going on now is Ray Fisher. Um, for those who don't know, Ray Fisher was his breakout theater um, actor that was coming up to the role and played Cyborg in the Justice League film. He had a, what, a cameo in Batman vs. Superman, Donna Duchess? I try not to remember that movie, but if I was, <laughs> yeah, he, right, yeah. he had a slight cameo from Batman vs. Superman, Donna Duchess, and this was supposed to be Ray Fisher's huge, big breakout role. Um, due to everything that was going on with Zack Snyder, Zack had to depart from the uh, film, and Joss Whedon came in to do all the patches. Um, Long story short, since this release, the Snyder Cut thing's been going on, and since there was a green light last October for them to do um, a Justice League um, Snyder Cut, Ray's been pretty vocal about, you know, hey, Joss is the reason why I can't get any, you know, roles now. I'm not doing as great as I thought I was. Um, I don't, I retract every statement I said back in San Diego Comic-Con in 2017. And I'm on this whole thing about like holding Zach's, I mean, not Zach Snyder, Joss Whedon accountable. And I would say recently the latest update we got was Warner Brothers said that Ray Fisher wasn't collaborating or helping with the investigation where he sent snapshots of basically talking to a Warner Brothers investigator saying that I am basically being correspondent or I'm being responsive to what's going on in the investigation, which we still don't have any... I would say, I don't know if you've seen anything, Brett, but I haven't seen anything about what has happened with the investigation or if there's any findings that they've found in the filming of Justice League. But at the moment, that's where we are, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that does a good job of kind, of kind of bringing everybody up to speed on that. I think kind of in the last couple of weeks, the only other thing that's really come out is um, one of the other stars of the film, Jason Momoa, um, has you know, kind of come out on the side of Ray Fisher where kind of most of the cast or really all the rest of the cast um, really has, has stayed quiet on that on that front to this point. Right. And nobody else but Jason has came up to his side and said, hey, we need to hold accountability for Joss Whedon and what's going on with Ray Fisher's career. With mm -hmm. leads to, I guess, one of my biggest questions or something that we kind of prefaced before when we were talking in Madden Talk and... I just want to ask you here, due to, I would say, we have a history of directors being able to do what they want and being able to kind of, in a sense, release the reins a little bit and be able to get the product that the producers and the investors want. 
do you believe that at this point in film careers or film industry in general, should there be this sense of accountability? Uh, man, that's uh, a very broad but very important question. Um, it's it's so difficult because I, I I had this conversation with with a guy that I went to film school with, um, and we were talking about the the whole kind of Ray Fisher thing, um, and I was like, you know, if if this Whedon thing, if it's not racist, if it's not sexist, I don't know that I really care. And I, that, that, I know that that's very flippant and, and my friend very quickly called me out on that and just like, well, you know, if it's, if it's, you know, psychological abuse, if the guy's just a monster to deal with on set, um, you know, shouldn't he have his comeuppance? And it's, it's certainly weird in the, you know, I want to say in the arts world that if a guy is producing, you know, a guy, a woman, if they are producing, like, do they just keep getting away with it, with having, you know, a bad personality, a bad, um, uh, you know, kind of work environment that they're building? Um, you know, do they just keep getting away with it? Um, you know, certainly I think Hollywood has a long list of directors and producers um, that, you know, are difficult to deal with, but they produce good t uh, product. And so, you know, that relationship just keeps uh, ongoing. Um, and I certainly think that, you know, with the, with the Me Too movement that was happening, um, you know, uh, kind of prior to um, kind of everything that then was escalating with the Warner Brothers uh, investigation, into Justice League, it's, it's, you know, I, I wish it was more black and white. And I still wish I, I didn't have the flippant answer that I had to my friend. But I, I don't know that there's there is a that it is black and white and that it can be something that is a little bit more, um more gray in the center, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree with you. Because for me, for instance, um, we're gonna, I'm gonna use this example to kind of pivot and try to ring this back together. It was like, um, I want to say, was it Hollywood? Yes, it was Ho the Hollywood Reporter sent out an article about two, almost three months ago now, um, about uh, Brian Singer and his contribution to the X Men franchise, right? And yeah. for everybody who's watched the X Men films, the first two were made by Brian Singer, and most people would say those are the best two X Men films in and the X-Men like franchise. Would I agree with them? Probably not. But you would say like, those are the two films that kind of, I would say made this movie superhero genre push even further than what it was. Now, yes, you had Blade. Yes, you had like a few like superhero movies that were out there, but Brian Singer and what he brought to the X-Men franchise kind of made it a commodity, a hot commodity, which led to Spider-Man for Sam Raimi to come and blow it out of the water. And then we have the MCU now. But if you go back and just read what Brian Singer was doing, right? Now, mm -hmm. you can't be black, you can't be gray with what he was doing. Like for instance, bringing boys, and I mean literal boys to the production and have being late, being drunk and like bringing countless kids to the production that he was messing with, you know, and having sexual relations with. There's nothing you can be black and white about in terms of what he was doing, right? And right. for the black producers and the investors to be like, I mean, we got a half billion dollar movie that we got and he's producing 
one of the best superhero commodities that 20th Century Fox at the time was doing, why, why should we stop him? And that's how he was able to get to where he was with X2, then Days of Future Past, and then inevitably all of that came crashing back to him on Bohemia Rhapsody. Um, but I feel like the reason why it even got to that point was because how much of a production nightmare and how the investors and the early viewing audience was just like, what the hell are we watching with Bohemian Rhapsody, you know? And mm-hmm. it, it's, it's kind of interesting to say, like, even with all of that being said, you know, you have that as like a preface of how black and white it could be. Whereas with, let's, let's use somebody who basically people talk about has a kind of a, a, a toxic work environment, but we haven't seen any evidence of it is like, you know, Steven Spielberg, who literally is rumored to be like the guy who can take a hundred takes on one scene to get the perfect shot, you know? And, you know, there's been a lot of rumors and a lot of allegations about like his work environment and how extensive his shoots can be and stuff like that. But there's nothing out there that kind of sticks, you know what I'm saying? And that's where you kind of sit there and be like, okay, are people telling the truth or is that something in the gray area, you know? And I feel like that's almost not the same thing as with Joss Whedon. I just, I don't know. I just wish we had more information about what's going on between the roles. I, I mean, personally, which is the most confusing part about this whole story is the fact that how before, after, right after Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, Warner Brothers was so adamant about giving everybody who was watching and listening to the movie news about it so much information about what was going on with the film hey we've done 30 minutes of footage that we sold our investors we've done 30 minutes of footage at san diego comic-con in 2016 that we think you guys will enjoy and they were so transparent when zach steiner was doing everything right and when he was under the helm they basically were like hey we knew how bad batman versus superman was but let's be transparent as possible to give you the movie that you guys were looking for. And then coincidentally enough, when Josh stepped into the directing chair, it kind of just like dissipated. We didn't really hear much. So it's like, I wanted to be black and white, but you guys kind of not gave us the information that we need to like know what's going on. Yes. You told us that he did what six weeks of extensive shooting. That's pretty Mm -hmm. basically much it. We don't know to what extent, what scenes were re- was reshoot besides the infamous um, mustache gate that we had with uh, Henry Campbell. <laughs> That's the only really thing that we know that were reshot, you know? But I, it's, it's interesting to see how Warner Brothers is tiptoeing around this topic, like you were saying. It's pretty interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly a a weird shoot <clears throat> excuse me on the just on justice league um you know i think warner brothers was looking at at zack snyder as certainly like this next you know christopher nolan type to really take them through um kind of the boat the post batman trilogy yeah um and so you know man of steel comes out man of steel kind of underperforms but you know for the most part i think Warner Brothers was okay with that. Okay, we're we're you know we're we're building up. I think then uh, Batman v Superman came out and and that really underperformed. And that at that point, I think too Warner Brothers was still um, so invested in Snyder and and his vision. Um, and they were also too looking on at the other side of the table and just seeing Marvel just skyrocket. Yes. Um, 
and so they were still then okay all 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 systems go uh for justice league and it you know i i think there was certainly pre, you know in that pre-production stage i think there was still probably some some tension um in terms of kind of what snyder was going to do with 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 justice league was it still going to be you know as as dark as as batman v superman were they going to find any sort of levity in it um and you know then certainly you know zach snyder had you know um the the family tragedy uh that then forced him to leave uh the production i think at that same time a lot of you know those those you know pro dc pro snyder uh fans out there really saw that that Warner Brothers was just capitalizing on the fact that they could finally get Snyder off of this. Exactly. And, and then too, you know, it's, it's again, a, a environment of people that were very pro DC, then seeing this essentially a Marvel guy come in and he was supposed to, you know, add levity to it. And I think that that then plays into, I think at this point, you know, again, we, we don't know a whole lot of the accusations that, that Fisher has um, levied against, against Whedon outside of just creating a, a toxic set. Um, but, you know, I, I think that the, the, you know, DC fanboys, the DC kind of universe can kind of see that as well as an opportunity to kind of, you know, really kind of levy, um, uh, you know, this, you know, built up rage towards towards Whedon, and you know, for Whedon's part, he's he's a guy that has worked quite a bit with you know that kind of um, Warner Brothers, AT and T uh, conglomerate, uh, HBO as well, kind of yeah. in there. Um, and it, it's it, it's a situation where you know, again, Whedon has you know had some things in in, in his past that aren't rosy in terms of kind of his. Uh, uh, on onset liaisons, I think some some of that stuff is more tabloidy. Um, yeah, uh, that happened. I think during his time on Buffy, but it is a guy that just has always constantly worked, and we really hadn't heard a whole lot of negative buzz about kind of the set environment that he was creating. Um, and so that that was part of that. I think to that initial shock with Fisher was that you know we didn't did two movies with Marvel, and for the most but part, we never heard it. Yeah, we never heard any any bad buzz coming from that those Marvel films, and then also too that which was kind of interesting and kind of gets into I think maybe Fisher's point in terms of this internal investigation that that uh, uh, Warner Brothers and and uh, AT and T are essentially doing, which is that you know Whedon and the the AT and T conglomerate subset HBO are in. They're partners right now. Uh, Whedon is in production um, pre-pandemic, and I think they're they're getting ready to probably shoot again um, on, on a coming uh, HBO show that that Whedon is show running. Yeah. So it's it's just this very murky relationship um, that that does create this this um, environment where you you know yeah like stuff like this you know unfortunately can happen because the the two, you know, the two major entities don't want to cause any friction there. And I think that's, that is kind of what, what Fisher is, is getting at as well. And I was going to say, I think that's what one of the biggest things that is contributing to everything that's going on. Right. And I, mm -hmm. I, I, I agree with that also. And I would even extend it a little bit even further. And I feel like 
I, I also feel like Ray Fisher also has some kind of emotional sentiment with it as well, because I mean, like we like I mentioned at the start of the uh, podcast is this was supposed to be his breakout role. He's been in theater and in Broadway a little bit. He's been doing his due diligence and this was going to be his debut acting role. And he was going to just supposed to just jump off the rails because this is going to be the first cyborg live action adaptation we're going to get. Well, well, yeah, adaptation before Titans came out. Um, mm-hmm. This was going to be a full-fledged, as we saw through the trailers, this was supposed to be a cyborg origin story. And right. then this year, we were supposed to get that cyborg movie that we were always were looking for. And from, I mean, I don't know if you would agree with me, but from the trailers we saw in the initial trailers before we didn't put in a final trailer right before um, Justice League came out in this, November of 2017, it looked good. It looked like Cyborg was going to get the do justice that he was going to do. We were going to see Victor become and deal become Cyborg and deal with the sins of being this machine and human at the same time. And it seemed like everything was going well. And I, I mean, I wouldn't if I was coming from theater and that was something that I was looking forward to and being the first black like DC superhero that was going to be like jumping off the rails. I would say sign me up as well. And for that to literally cut out, be cut out of the movie for, because if I remember correctly, the runtime for Zack Snyder's Justice League was supposed to be almost three hours. And the movie we got was right over two. Was it right? Like two hours and 12 minutes, something like that. It was something along. Right. And, you know, that's a huge chunk of origin story that you had to cut out. We didn't get enough of what happened with the Amazons. We didn't get a lot of the stuff that was going on with like i said with cyborgs like we didn't get enough of you know the whole story arc that supposedly is supposed to happen with black superman which again as a dc fanboy and i will say this on this podcast as a huge DC <laughs> fanboy i don't think you got enough time to be going to that part of superman but besides the point and <laughs> you you you've been sold this idea that this was going to happen then not only not have that idea go into fruition but have another director come in and say hey i'm doing something completely different from the vision that this guy had so i need you to work with me and i feel like that's where you know kind of the discrepancy comes into play and you know as somebody who will be looking at ray fisher's side yeah i can i can completely sympathize and empathize with you on that and also realize that that's the nature of the business but what's not the nature of the business is doing that and then basically do like what uh, Alfred Hitchcock did to Tippi Hedren after the birds. You know what I'm saying? Uh, right. And I don't feel like that was the case with Joss Whedon and Ray Fisher. I feel like it was just, and, I, and it's sad to say this, this is what happens in Hollywood. You get into a role, you start in this like big cataclysmic role that you think is going to be your breakout role ultimately to find out that this is not going to be your breakout role. This is something that is looked frowned upon and you don't look great in it. And, you know, now you got to find a way to break into Hollywood again, you know? And I feel like that's what Ray Fisher's dealing with now, because as we talked about, he can't get a job in Hollywood. He can still get jobs in theater. He can still be, they, he can still be able to do that, but he wanted to be in Hollywood. He wanted to be a A-list actor and, for that not to happen with Justice League like he wanted, I feel like that kind of added fuel to the fire for him to be like, hey, I want this to be investigated and find out what's going on, if that made sense. No, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly, 
you know, I, I think, you know, I, I, I can't speak for them, but I certainly, you know, I'm sure the, the women um, that, that came out during that Me Too movement, that was something that they were having to certainly grapple exactly. with. Um, and, and kind of the same thing with Fisher where, yeah, he's, um, you know, post Justice League, I think then he booked and did the, the third season of True Detective. True Detective, and then yeah. And, you know, True, True Detective season three, what we're looking, you know, at least 18 months ago, if not, if not more, I, I don't have the dates here in front of me. And since then, I don't think he has a, a credit to his name. And that's, you know, that's where, that's where kind of, I, I, I start to have that, that mind of like, you know, is, is the, is the whistleblowing on the set, is, is that worth it to, to your career? And again, I, I, you know, again, flippantly or, you know, could very well could be wrongly that I'm, I'm like, well, again, like if it's, if it's, if, if we didn't is again, just like a tyrant on set, do people care? Like is, is, is levying a, a psychological burden while you're creating art, is that enough for people to be on your side with or to, um, to kind of whistleblow on something, you know, it's, it's kind of that, um, you know, uh, you know, in sports like that, you know, you, you don't talk about what happens in the clubhouse and, you know, do you not talk about what happens on a film set? Because at that time you're, you're creating art and, and art is messy and, and, you know, people's emotions are, are, very you know kind of up and down and all over the place when you are creating art and so if it isn't something that that is you know as easy as like looking at something like like racism or sexism as you know we can i think kind of we're getting better with saying like okay you know some of this stuff is more black and white in that gray area we, we need to be able to to address that in a, in a better fashion you know is this sort of kind of event being like okay well maybe you know um, kind of the psychological warfare that that can happen on on a set or in in other environments, you know, like in a workplace, um, is that stuff that we really should be addressing as well at, at this point. And to that point, I feel like I would say, in my opinion, um, I would say it would be um, one prime example where it kind of changed the aspect of this director was Three Kings, David O. Russell and George Clooney, and. Mm -hmm. Granted, there's some variables in there where I feel like that kind of helped in George Clooney's side versus what happened with David <laughs> O. Russell's side. Because, you know, for those who don't know, David O. Russell was the physical, and not physical, but verbal abuser on a set. He was known for his hmm. notorious rants, calling you out your name, basically just calling you everything else besides your, you know, you know your given name. So um, in one, how the story goes is David O. Russell was talking to, was it somebody in production? Somebody in the production and it got mm -hmm. so out of hand that George Clooney basically confronted him on set and literally fought him and, and like literally whooped his ass on set. <laughs> and that story came out and I feel like that's why David O. Russell had to kind of change the way that he was doing films because it's like, hey, if an A-list actor is coming out here and whooping my ass because of how aggressive I am with somebody, then yeah, sure. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, I agree that I feel like we should, I, I feel like personally, I feel like we should be able to hold people accountable if they're doing things like that. Right. But mm -hmm. on the flip side of that, like you were saying, if you're a well-renowned director or well-renowned producer, 
I feel like some of the time it does fall to the wayside. The only reason I feel like it kind of helped the women that was basically sexually assaulted and raped by Harvey Weinstein was because there were so many women that he has done this to and they all have came together and said, we need to take him. Like he needs to go to jail and he needs to be sitting bars for the rest of his life, right? Whereas mm-hmm. I don't know too many people who will basically one person that I feel like I don't know if he's changed or not, but one person who did have these also behaviors, but who is still running a franchise, well, who will be running a franchise now is James Cameron. You know, Kate Winslet back in 97, 96, and 95 was saying, hey, this dude is so abysmal to deal with. I will say right now on like press, while they are in winning the dozen Academy Awards they won, or 11, sorry, not dozen, 11 Academy Awards they won, Kate Winslet said on those red carpets, I will never work with this man again. I will never do it. He is so abysmal to deal with. He is so annoying to be around with. And Kate Winslet came out there and said anything. However, his movie became the top grossing film of all time. And then 12 years later, did Avatar and Sigourney Weaver, you know, Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana, and Michelle Rodriguez aren't coming out and saying anything about him. None of them has said anything about like how his behavior was in a sense or anything like that. And that film became, you know, another top grossing film, actually surpassing Titanic. And mm-hmm. I feel like, which is, I hate to say it, the worst part of it all kind of roots to, well, that's a whole different conversation I'm gonna talk about with rooting to 20th Century Fox. Cause as, you, as we talk about, I think there's a kind of a pattern here with 20th Century Fox. But besides that, mm-hmm. I feel like, if you are that great of a director, you unfortunately get those passes. You get those, eh, okay, he's fine. He didn't do, he kind of said some things on there and went about that. But I, I feel like with directors who have a name for themselves or who's trying to make a name for themselves, I mean, that's where the kind of the discrepancy comes into play. And I feel like that's how David O. Russell kind of had to change the way he was directing because you know, he was still coming off the reins of a couple of films that he was doing, and Three Kings was with him, Mark, I mean, with George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, and Ice Cube, and those are, like, at the time, three big names that you wanted in your films. And so now, with with Joss Whedon, like you said, I feel like he kind of has this conglomerate behind him that's like, hey, we got an HBO Max show that looks like it's going to be phenomenal. He did kind of, quote-unquote, kind of, saved our asses with uh, Justice League and gave us a little bit more money than we figured, but it still was a financial bomb. But with his storytelling and what he's done with the Avengers and Avengers Age of Ultron, I feel like that's enough for us to like back him up. You know what I'm saying? So that's why it's like, I wish there was a way you could hold him accountable more, but unfortunately in this machine that we have in the film industry, it's kind of like, can you really though, if he's banking in the money that you want you know well it's 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 tough and you know i i will say i think you're giving david or russell uh, a little bit more credit because then you know after the the three kings incident but uh which like i i remember um i remember that that happening and that 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 kind of circulating in the news i have a, i have a book uh rebels on the back lot that i love reading that oh, kind of okay. digs into that a little bit as well um, but then, I mean, it was only then a couple years later, uh, David O. Russell was making I Heart Huckabees and there was, uh, footage of You're him right. on set You're just right. screaming at people. Um, 
and again, it's like, okay, well, uh, I, I'm okay, Brett. Well, if that, if that happened, I'm, I'm sure David O. Russell went to went to uh, director's jail after that. And no, he didn't. He did he, not. He, he then just continued to make, you know, you know, independent with with quotations around it. You know, those those <laughs> mid-sized uh, adult budgets. Um, but he he would still get you know a plus talent, and you know even even then this week, uh, David Washington is moving from you know uh, starring in Tenant to he's going to be now in David O. Russell's next film. So you know again, yep. there there's there's there just seems like in, in Hollywood there's not that accountability for being a monster on set. You know, um, again looking at David O. Russell. Uh, one of his frequent collaborators and, and going to be in the, in the new movie with uh, John David Washington is uh, Christian Bale. Christian and we have, Bale, you know, yeah. we, you know, we have the audio of when Bale was, was a monster on set to, to the cinematographer. And, you know, wh what happened to Bale? I think he had to go on. I, did, did Bale even do any apology tour? I think Bale was just no. like, I'm, <laughs> I'm creating art. And we get he, angry at each other. Exactly. He he came out and I call it a backhand apology. I, I call it. <laughs> he basically was like, Yeah, you know, I was just I was in the moment. I'm trying to basically be John Connor in Terminator Salvation and I'm I'm in the moment. And so when I'm in the moment, I'm making art. And I'm I'm sitting there as a 14, 15 year old boy who, <laughs> you know, aspired to be a director. It's like, what? You could just cuss me out and just say it's art. It's I'm I'm making art here. And I'm like, okay. All right, Christian Bale. And as you think, Christian Bale still is doing movies. He was in, uh, was it 2019's Cheney? Like, yeah, and like, yeah. Dick Cheney. So it's like, I don't know. It's, it's very interesting to say that, and I agree. But I was going to say, I feel like in production, in the production of everything, it's kind of like, oh, we're not going to do as much. But one person in particular, besides Harvey, that we're going to try to keep harping on, um, that kind of got in trouble for his out-of-production behavior was Mel Gibson. You know, after he made Passion of the Christ, he made those anti-Semitic and, like, racist slurs. And that's when he got the, all right, you're out. You know, he had to sit and time out for, I would say, what, almost 10 years? Until he made um, Hacksaw Ridge in 2016. And you're sitting there like, okay, he had to sit in jail for 10 years just for saying something out outside of the production. But it seems like, like you said, a lot of Hollywood execs are now like, yeah, what you do in production, we're just going to put a blind eye to it. And unless the movie gets abysmal, then we're not going to do anything, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's this weird reckoning, reckoning that, that Hollywood is, is having to do right now. Because, yeah, certainly... Um, you know, even, you know, we, we mentioned Brian Singer, but, you know, um, even during the, you know, before all the uh, kind of uh, sex, you know, potential sex crimes uh, came up with, with Singer, um, there was just the fact that he was awful to deal with on set. Like, yes. the man just wouldn't show up, he'd be late, um, call in sick all the time. And evidently you know just walked off the set for a prolonged amount of time on bohemian rhapsody um you know still then uh 20th century fox threw all their oscar campaign behind that movie um yeah and still then you know so there's all the stories about how awful singer was on set you know and there was then that the the background murmurs of, about about the uh 
the underage males thing still going, you know, still be, being whispered, whispered about at that time. And still, Singer locked up a film right after Bohemian Rhapsody. He was supposed to do Red Sonia, Red Sonia um, yeah. a, a comic adaptation. You know, eventually uh, the producers on that film were like, oh, we, we clearly made a bad choice. Uh, clearly people are starting to care about this kind of stuff. Um, but it was just very emblematic of, of the very narrow my, uh, blinders that, that I think Hollywood and producers can have on the stuff that, it, again, isn't just easily black and white that they can be like, oh, okay, that's clearly bad. Like if there's a little bit of kind of um, gray to it, they're like, cool, whatever, we don't care uh, as long as this guy is making money. Right, and I feel like that's that's one thing that I would say that I would say Hollywood would rather, I would want them to address more than anything else. Um, but, you know, with the Me Too movement, there there's more of accountability with the sexual assault claims and sexual misconduct and right allegations, I mean, not allegations, convictions and stuff like that. And I, and I commend the Me Too movement for that and basically putting that into rest because that's been a thing for years and decades since almost like golden age of Hollywood was a thing. So I'm happy that that was something that's being changed. However, I'm, I, I agree with, you know, what we're saying is like, you know, how the directors and producers are like, you know, still able to have this, this behavior during production but I feel like now the, the shift of Hollywood is now moving from, hey, let's, let's not shifting, but I feel like the direction is now being more towards, you know, uh, hashtag Oscar so white or, you know, lack of representation in, you know, Hollywood films and the Oscars and stuff like that. And one thing that I guess I, I want to ask you about, because I feel like this is something, um, something that I want to talk about. But if before we get there, is there anything else you wanted to talk about with accountability with producers and directors before we? No, no, yeah, yeah. Let's okay. let's keep keep going. <laughs> so yeah, with one of the things that I guess for me was just like a head scratcher was you know Hollywood was it in September or August? One of the two months. Um, sorry, everything's blending together because of COVID. Um, <laughs> Hollywood came out and Oscar said, "Hey, we have these four categories." that you need to do as a checklist. Two, if you do two of these four movies, that's how your film will be nominated for Best Picture. That's the only way your film will be nominated for Best Picture. And looking at this checklist, and I, I'm honestly calling it a checklist, it's like, oh, so all we have to do now is just hire somebody of color and or a woman of color or just a woman in general to be able to be in these productions, I mean, either in something behind the scenes or make a story about somebody like that. It's like now a checklist for me. Right. And it doesn't seem like, for me, it doesn't seem like authentic. It doesn't seem like this is something that's gonna be, oh wow, now producers are really about to start trying to make stories about certain people. Granted, there's gonna be a few diamonds in a rough where they're gonna basically take this into consideration and be serious about it. And we're gonna get some really great stories that will be nominated for best picture like Roma, Parasite, you know, films like that. But at the same time, I feel like Hollywood would take this as, okay, cool. I can still make my, I guess not, not saying this, no offense, um, Brett, but I can still make my whitewash movies in a sense, mm -hmm. but all I have to do is to put one person here in production design, put one person here in cinematography, put one person here who's like a production assistant and they have to be of color and they have to have, some kind of way to address their career cool that's all i needed all right cool now i'm back to my movie 
And that's how I feel like most movies that will try to be Oscar mo- buzz movies is going to fruition. And I don't feel like this is the accountability that I was looking for, if that made sense. No, I, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's, again, it's Hollywood likes to think that they are very progressive, but really that like with, with the move, like they did for the Oscars, it's, it's, they're just countering, they're counterpunching really. They're, Basically. you know, and what, what I hope with, um, you know, with, with what the Academy was doing with those rules is setting, setting a framework, something that they can yeah. build, build upon, um, you know, certainly, you know, we'll see. And, you know, again, too, it's, it's the, you know, I think on both sides, I, I think it, people were, were upset with, with what the Academy and the Oscars did in, in relation to that. Um, you know, I, th- I certainly think there's, there's the side that says, you know, you didn't do enough. This, these four checklists, a film is going to be easily able to, 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 to meet yeah, these. They're not going to, they're not really having to change their hiring practices at all. Or, you know, it's not speaking to, you know, um, you know, like the Rooney rule in the NFL where, you know, minority candidates need to be interviewed for, um, for head coaching jobs. If, if a vacancy comes available, which is, is a whole nother, uh, <laughs> a whole nother thing. We can make a whole podcast about the Rooney rule. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I think, and then I think then on the, on the other side of the, that Oscar argument, there were people that were just like, well, again, it's art and you're putting rules to art. Is, is that right? Um, you know, and, and yeah, like looking, you know, looking at a, at a film like, like the Irishman or something and, you know, saying, okay, well, like would the Irishman have fit or like with the wizard of Oz, like, are you saying like these movies, you know, didn't, didn't do this right. It's, you know, it's, it's a, a, a tricky tightrope, I think, um, to put out there. But again, what, what I hope is that this was just a foundation that, that they can, they can, you know, start to start to grow, start to tweak. And it's just, it's a document out there to, to say that like, Hey, we, we understand that there is, there is problems with, with yeah. the hiring practices or representation, um, uh, you know, in front of the camera and behind, and that we, we, we we're starting to have a plan. It, do, do they really have that? Uh, you know, we certainly don't know, but I, I sure hope so. And, and that's what I guess my biggest thing is, it's like, Yes, by 2024, 2025, I think that's the year. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, you have until then to be able to do this checklist, right? And right. for me, like you said, I don't think that was the issue that many of us had with the Oscars, right? Um, I feel like the issue was, and I feel, and I say this again and again, is just the expanding of giving, you know, people of color those right, those films that were just phenomenal right and mm-hmm. you know Hollywood and this is this is terrible and this is why I feel like back then when I was a kid I loved being like wanting to watch the Oscars and saying oh one day I want to be that but after realizing just the politics of it I feel like that's where the issue comes in because for instance um one of the movies that I really 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 wish got at least one nomination back in 2012 2013 was Fruitvale Station um, mm. Michael B. Jordan, let's be honest, Michael B. Jordan got a resurgence in his career with that performance. And Ryan Coogler, as that his directorial debut, 
kind of spearheaded the way that he is now in Hollywood. Like he got to do Black right. Panther. He got to revitalize the um, Rocky slash, we call it now, cricket franchise. <laughs> arguably, me personally, we talked about this before. He made arguably one of the best boxing films of all time, besides, you know, Raging Bull and a couple of others we talked about. But, yeah. you know, that Fruitvale Station kind of was the apparent point where, like, wow, I would love to see this movie be nominated and it just not get anything. Um, uh, for instance, another movie that I watched and I think was the best film of 2018 was If Bill Street Could Talk. Barry Jenkins mm-hmm. making a sequel, not a sequel, but his second film, which I feel like was just as emotional and as poignant as Moonlight, you know? And mm-hmm. I didn't get anything besides Regina King getting nominated for Best Acting. I mean, Best uh, right. Actress. And so, you know, the problem was for me is it's not the fact that there's not movies out there that does these representation films. It's the fact that you're not giving them an eye to even be nominated for best picture. And if you do give them a nomination for best picture, let's be honest, they're slavery or civil rights movies, like 13 years, 12 years of slave, one best picture. Um, What was that movie that just came out like a couple of years back? Oh, Green Book. Yeah, there we go. Green Book winning best picture. And it's like, okay, these movies are hitting the same Hollywood tropes, the same Hollywood politics. Oh, is it a back in time film, a history film? Yes. Is it a period piece about a certain topic that America does not want to address? Yes. Is it about like hard and difficult times? But yes, those three check boxes, Hollywood loves that. And it's like, okay, why can't other films that does way better stories about something more important like Moonlight, which I'm I'm gonna say this on the podcast now. I was so surprised Moonlight won best picture back in 2016, 2017 over La La Land, even though I did believe, and I still believe that Moonlight was one of the best films of 2010s. I was still surprised that even happened because of the politics of Hollywood, but it's like, can that happen again? You know, and it just shows five years. Yeah, maybe. Well, no, and I I think, you know, I I think there was probably a a section of, of Hollywood or the, you know, consuming base that that looked at if Beatle Street could talk and said, oh, okay, well, that's why it's not getting the the love, the the accolades um, that Moonlight did is because, oh, okay, they, they, they checked the box with Moonlight, so they don't have to check it again for, a, for another couple years. Right. Just, you know, it's, it's again where Hollywood loves to think of, well, you know, it's, it's a town that loves to think of itself as, as very, very progressive. progressive. And and you know certainly yes like moonlight winning like great great moment in hollywood great moment in film history but then it was no more than was it a, was it the next year or two years later that then they gave it to green book and you're just like green green books green books not it that's green book kind of feels <laughs> green book kind of feels retrograde like this is not the kind of stories that that it's the stories that do need to be tell, told but not in that fashion I'll say. right so like yeah, like you like you're saying, Moonlight won that year, and I believe the year following was Guillermo del Toro's. So I call it okay. Oscar because he won for Shape of Water, which yeah, of all movies that <laughs> did like it's, we're doing it for that. Okay, it's there's there's a reason I forgot that that uh, it was the next year was Guillermo del Toro in the Shape of Water because uh, it's a very forgettable Oscar year. Again, right, and I'm just like oh okay whatever all right all right hollywood and then we got green book winning best picture that year 
And you're right. You're like two years ago. We we are showing a movie with a black man, a black uh, gay man trying to learn his life, and then we're giving it to a movie about an Italian man driving a black man around the South, and he's unlearning racism. It's like right. Okay, we're just doing a movie now, and yeah. like you said, it's just it's Hollywood's politics of being able to like. I feel like it's saying, okay, we gave that movie a win. And so now we can be able to just do what we wanted. And I think that's what we got with Green Book. And I mean, let's be, I, I'm just going to be honest here. I feel like they were like, oh, we're so progressive with this pick that we got for Green Book. And it's like, what was the progression? Like, what progression was there? It's it's a, I hate to, I, I mean, I'm going to use it. It's the White Savior Complex movie that- 100%, yes. <laughs> it's like, okay, all right. And then this last year, which I feel like was a shot out the dark, but I, I, I really enjoyed it, was giving a Korean film Best Picture and how it depicts societal issues in the society of, you know, like I call it capitalism in a sense. And I enjoyed seeing a film like that. But yeah. again, in the back of my mind, it's like, A, there's been so many movies that have done this but you won't give them the light of the day. Uh, but because it's a Bong Joon-ho film, I think like that's really why it's one there. Not not negating Parasite, because again, I feel like it's one of the best films of 2010s, but I feel like, again, politics were involved with that. And B, until 2024, 2025 Oscar season comes out, will you continue to do this? Like, will you for the next five years try to give another foreign film or another like person of color, a woman of color film this kind of, rain or this kind of like hey this is a great film that we're going to put in the oscars and give them this light or is it just going to be like okay now we're going to be able to do what we want for three or four years until we got to start doing a checklist you know well right well and it's you know i i think certainly um something like parasite was buoyed from the fact that you know along with with the you know um kind of uh four four point checklist that the academy created certainly the other you know progressive move we'll say is is just opening up that that voting um that voting body yes. Yes. and and you know and i think that's important because you know when you look at you know the people that had been voting um you know you're looking at, at hollywood history you're looking at the you know 40s 50s 60s where hollywood is is very very white and it's <laughs> yes in front of the camera and then certainly behind it you know there's just not a lot of women there uh, not a lot of uh minorities in 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 position so it, it certainly then influenced you know yeah kind of who the academy was picking um uh for not only the nominees which you know getting getting that nomination in there and i i love the fact that you you um shouted out fruitville station as something that should have been nominated i think we're 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 almost lucky in the fact that, you know, all the principals involved with Fruitville still went on to really have a, you know, they all have great careers at this point, but you know, yeah. that wasn't guaranteed. That's not guaranteed. And, you know, getting those nominations where they should have happened helps them. Um, and it's the same thing with, you know, getting interviews. So it's, you know, it's something like, you know, just kind of spitballing in my head. I'm like this, you know, certainly like the Academy now has this, this checklist um, that they're going to go through for films. But like, does that need to be like at the studio level, um, the production yeah. level where yeah. that the studios have to look at this and kind of, you know, and I, I think they, they're again, like putting hard parameters on that kind of stuff 
with art, it, 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 it can feel a little bit, a little bit, a little bit murky, a little bit like, ah, like, like art just needs to be art. But like, at the same time, it's like, well, you're dealing with people's lives and careers. Like having these che- checklists just, again, gives the framework to be more inclusive. Like once we see that, you know, our, our society can be more conclusive. Okay. Well, maybe then these, these, these borders or these kind of frameworks can come down a little bit, but certainly, you know, I think Hollywood can look at it and say, we weren't doing a good job. Like we need, we need more of these in place. And, and yeah, I think, you know, potentially studios looking at that and saying, okay, like we, we need to do a little bit better job of that can then help and help in the future as well. Right. And I feel like that's where the biggest, I feel like for me in a roundabout way, I think that's the biggest thing to start with now. It's, it's just accountability all across the board and being able to like point and not point and shoot, but point and say, Hey, you know, we do have these women that are directors. We have these women and women of color who are doing phenomenal things in directing. We have these men of color who are also doing great things in directing or just making films or producing films, you know, of any of the facets, right? And I feel like in the studio's heads, I mean, granted, yes, we know most of the studio heads are either, you know, white or they're like, uh, are, um, or men of color in a sense, I mean, men of color, but at the same time, like, all their assistants, everybody who's kind of making the financial decisions or who's making the final go ahead to say, hey, this movie should go in and the investors are majority white. So I feel like, yeah, we're getting to the point now and I feel like I can say this a little bit in 2020, the expansion of these availabilities for projects are like, in a sense, going where it needs to go. But I feel like the issue now stands as though, and I feel like this has just been a biggest issue with Hollywood is now, hey, let's take this movie that we believe is one of the best films we've made, even though it's a $2 million to $5 million budget, let's take that film and let's actually try to give it the Oscar buzz that it deserves, you know? And I feel like that's one of the biggest issues that I have with Hollywood. Like, granted, yes, we do need more Black studio heads. Um, no offense to anybody who's watching this, listening to this podcast. No, I do not think Tyler Perry is one of them. And let's, let's nip that here. Um, I do believe that we need more like people of color to go into those studio heads and say, Hey, let's push these movies out. Let's, Hey, let's make these decisions. And I feel like that's where it starts and it has to start there because everything can then start trickling down because now like, we can be able to say, hey, we don't have less than 10% of women of directors anymore. We now have, you know, about 30, 40% in like, let's say 10 to 15 years from now. Um, now we can be like, oh, okay, instead of like how we did in 2010, in the 2010s, hey, we have maybe two or three black films or Asian films or even like any foreign films being nominated every two or three years or even maybe twice this decade. Let's have one every year in the Oscars because they're that damn good, you know? And I feel right. like once that is addressed, I feel like everything will start trickling down. But until then, we're gonna be in the same, I feel like in the same cycle until that is addressed. Yeah, checkbook, checklist, cool. But I feel like if you really want representation out there, because let's be honest, like I said, there's so many films out there that has this representation. We need to start with the studio heads and promoting and pushing and basically I, I hate to say it commodifying those films out there so it could be to the mass audience and it could be trickled down to the Oscar season. 
Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> couldn't, agree, <laughs> couldn't agree with you more there. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the only thing I'd add to that is, you know, um, you know, hopefully, you know, <laughs> hopefully we, we do get an Oscar season this year. I am one. I, I do love the Oscar seasons. Like the Oscars are important to me. Right. Um, and, you know, just like looking, looking at it, you know, there, there's the, the potential that, you know, we could have a, a, a black woman in, in Regina King with, with one night in Miami, you know, the, the buzz out of that, from that film is, is fantastic, fantastic right now. So, yes. so hope, you know, and, and that is, you know, right now, certainly I think in my, in my most anticipated films of the year at this point, um, so yeah, one night in Miami and then, and then in terms of animated films, um, you know, Disney is going to be dropping uh, Soul on uh, on their uh, Disney Plus service here on Christmas Day, and again, um, a, a you know a, a black lead character in that about uh, jazz music. Like, I, I'm ready to go, and that that'd be really, I think, amazing to have. Yeah, a you know, two films um, competing in in the best of categories. Um, you know, I, I certainly don't think that's happened before we're no. animation and, and best picture. Um, so, you know, hopefully, hopefully we're, we're having some change and it's, you know, uh, just not, not as quick as, as it needs to be. I agree. And I couldn't agree more with a little side note. I will say this for everybody who does have a Disney plus and is assuming that Mulan is going to be like Mulan with soul that you're going to have to pay <laughs> to access it. Brett has conferred with me a week ago and I conferred again. Soul will be free on Disney plus. So you do which, not have to worry about. Yeah. And which is going to be amazing as well. Cause soul very well might be the most watched Pixar film of all time. Based exactly. off the fact that it's going to be free on their service on Christmas. Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a move that not only speaks to certainly like where we are with, with theaters and, and, and the pandemic that, but also to Disney's like, Hey, like, yes, we, we are going with a, a, uh, you know, a, uh, a black animated league character about jazz. Like we're, we're going with this as a, as our big piece of entertainment for, for the holiday season. Which is exciting enough compared to what we got from them last year in Christmas. Um, I will not talk about the, um, and a Kendrick Christmas movie that we got, uh, and those <laughs> other Hallmark Christmas movies on Disney Plus. So I yeah. I couldn't agree more. I'm I'm like you. I I can't wait to see if this will be if we have an Oscars, which they are still debating about. I <laughs> I'm I'm excited to see what Richie McKee will do with One Night in Miami and what Jamie Foxx has done in Soul. Everything mm -hmm. looks phenomenal so far. So I, I'm right with you there, Brett. I'm excited yeah. and yeah. Hopefully, side note. Last thing before we go, um, I do hope if there's any consolation prize, I do hope Elizabeth Moss gets some kind of nomination for The Invisible Man because I still <laughs> think that's one of the best films and the best acting performances I saw this year. But yes, I'm, I'm, I'm with you and uh, we'll, uh, we'll have to <laughs> have a longer conversation another time about uh, genre representation in, in the Academy. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a whole other <laughs> <laughs> I'll hold you to that, Brent. Well, thanks again, Brent. I appreciate you being on the show today. Um, just if you want to, is there anything that you're doing now recently? Is there anything you would like to promote or anything like that before we head out? No, but I mean, you, uh, you, your listeners can find me uh, every gosh darn day on a letterbox at the Leipziger. And uh, I do a uh, bi-weekly podcast with, uh, 
one of your podcasting mates there, Johnny Lightfoot, at uh, If the Armchair Fits. And I'll put that link for The Armchair Fits into the description so you guys can look into that. Um, and I was going to say, Letterbox is this thing where Brett, Johnny, and myself do. It's like a diary, I call it. It's a diary for all the films that we watch. We put reviews in there. I don't do reviews just yet. I'm still, I still need to get comfortable with doing that right now, even though for two years I've been doing it on Mad Nate Talk. Whole different conversation. But I will, I will, once it gets there, you guys will see that. But again, Brett, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. You are welcome to come anytime. And we, we definitely have to have a conversation when it gets there about genres and representation. So thanks again, <laughs> Brett. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. You're welcome. All right, guys, you enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>